1: Welcome to the New Books and Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talise, I am Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University, and I co-host the channel with Carrie Figder. Carrie is Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. Today, welcome to the New Books and Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese. I am professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University, and I co host the channel with Carrie Figder. Carrie is associate professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. Today, my guest is Professor Mark Navin. His new book is titled Values and Vaccine Refusal Hard Questions in Ethics, Epistemology, and Healthcare. It's just been published by Routledge. Navin is associate professor of philosophy at Oakland University. Communities of parents who refuse, delay, or selectively decline to vaccinate their children pose several familiar moral and political questions regarding public health, safety, and risk. But additionally, there are epistemological questions about these communities. Though frequently dismissed as simply ignorant, superstitious, or stupid, it turns out that vaccine suspicion, denial, and refusal are positively correlated with higher levels of education and a greater depth of knowledge about vaccine science. Accordingly, the common view that vaccine refusal is the product of ignorance seems simplistic. Yet the more strident forms of vaccine refusal are based on demonstrably false beliefs. How is this combination best explained? In Values and Vaccine Refusal, Navin offers a balanced examination of the epistemology and value commitments of various stripes of vaccine refusal. After arguing that vaccine refusers may be reasonable, he then defends a novel version of the view that there is a moral requirement to vaccinate one's children. He then defends the claim that the state may use coercive means to enhance vaccination. But Navin also makes room for exemptions for non-medical reasons. Navin's book is a fascinating philosophical exploration of some very deep questions at the intersection of social epistemology and social ethics. There's a lot to talk about, so let's turn to the interview. Hello, Mark Navin. Hi, Bob. How are you doing today? I'm doing
0: very well. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, thanks for being on New Books in Philosophy. Um, And thank you, listeners, for checking out our podcast. My guest today is Mark Navin. And he's just published a great book titled Values and Vaccine Refusal, Hard Questions in Ethics, Epistemology, and Healthcare. Uh, I recommend this book highly, um, to anyone, uh, philosopher or otherwise, uh, who struggles to understand an odd and growing, uh, phenomenon that is the phenomenon of vaccine refusal. And there's a lot to talk about here. And perhaps some of what there is to talk about is surprising and we'll get into some of the the ways in which this topic has philosophical uh, surprises built into it uh, in the course of the discussion. So there's a lot to talk about, and as the subtitle of the book suggests, there are some hard questions about epistemology and ethics uh, to be hashed out. But before we get into those details, uh, we usually begin these interviews uh, with a statement from the author about him or herself. So Mark, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself?
0: Sure. So I grew up on and and near military bases around the country. My father was a a naval officer. We moved very often. and I was interested, I think, at an early age relatively in politics and history and in war and I suppose I had philosophical interests in those topics uh, about liberty, equality, uh, possibly peace, though I I suppose I wouldn't have known those were philosophical questions. I don't think I was first exposed to philosophy until – what uh, slippery rock! Uh, at the College of Bard, sent out defensive Socrates in its application materials, which is, is a great idea. I wish more colleges and universities would make their applicants uh, read and respond to philosophy to apply. I, I didn't end up going there. I went to Cornell, uh, where I majored in philosophy, uh, and I took as many classes as I could with Dick Miller and Henry Shue. In fact, I think I majored in them. Uh, so probably not the wisest choice. I was. Oh
1: well, well, you could do much worse. I could do worse, but you know, I have to regret
0: about all the other wonderful faculty I did not take classes with. I was on an ROTC scholarship uh, with the understanding I would uh, have a career in the military uh, and I gr- regret um, uh, that I wasn't as serious a student as, a, as I might have been because uh, I was planning on a, a military career in the military really didn't care about my philosophy class grades, but uh, the don't ask, don't tell policy got in the way of my military career uh, and so I had to go a different way. I, uh, I taught high school for a couple of years. And I fell in love with teaching and I wanted to teach at the university level and uh, Henry and Dick convinced me that uh, I might have a career as a philosopher uh, and they supported my applications to graduate school. I was very lucky that University of Pennsylvania admitted me since I had frankly a very mixed undergraduate record uh, and I ended up writing a dissertation on Rawls and global justice uh, under Cock Chua who had just written two books on that topic uh, and supervised uh, as well by Samuel Freeman. Uh, and with the support of uh, Paul Geyer, who helped me think about some of the Kantian themes in the Rawlsian global justice literature. Uh, I was very, very fortunate to be hired into my job at Oakland University, uh, which is, I tell people, the best school no one's heard of. Uh, <laughs> I was hired in, in 2008, just before the market tanked. It's a relatively teaching-intensive position, but I've been fortunate to have uh, time and support to do some research, uh, but also build a family. I have three children. Uh, and. Uh, Perhaps this is a nice way to segue. It, it was my experiences as a father more than uh, as a philosopher that propelled me into thinking about vaccine refusal.
1: Excellent. Well, why don't we pick up there? Because, um, you know, it's always nice when an author uh, begins a book with an explicit statement about um, the experiences or the motivations otherwise of his or her getting involved in in a project. So um, this book is uh, comes with a pretty Uh, interesting story of that kind Um, so as you just said being a father has put you into pretty direct contact with a community of uh, people who are suspicious of vaccines maybe that's one way to put it or uh, have some stronger still negative attitudes towards them can you tell us a little bit about um, your experiences uh, as a father and then how that got you thinking philosophically about the issue and then maybe tell us, uh, in addition, a little bit about the, the community, the, sure. the, the, the community of vaccine refusers and how diverse it seems to be. Mm-hmm.
0: So, sure. I have three small children and I have friends who uh, are refusing some vaccines that are on the, the recommended schedule or on the school and daycare mandated uh, schedules. Uh, I have other friends who are delaying those schedules for vaccinating their children, choosing not to do, for example, more than one inoculation at once. Uh, and I have acquaintances. I confess I don't have any close friends, but I have acquaintances. I know a number of people who are not refusing, uh, that is say, not vaccinating at all. And I was very puzzled. I think I began the book by saying I was angry and and convinced these people were irrational or excessively emotional or just stupid, uh, and and maybe even evil. And I wanted to think through that because it was it that did not uh, that did not mesh with my experience of these folks as very thoughtful, uh, as committed parents, as good citizens. Uh, and I wanted to to think through that uh, a little better. Uh, and it might help just some terminology. So many people, depending on the poll, upwards of forty percent of uh, of parents who are polled are vaccine hesitant, as say they they are not sort of enthusiastically committed to the consensus view about the safety and efficacy of vaccines on the standard schedule. That's a sort of position of of a sort of skepticism
1: uh, and a
0: reluctance to act. There's another term vaccine denialist. So a vaccine denialist denies. It's a matter of belief denies some part of the scientific consensus uh, about vaccines Uh, and a vaccine refuser. This is a matter of action is someone who uh, refuses to follow the the recommended or or mandated vaccine schedule. They can do it in a selective way. They refuse some vaccines or they can do it in a a delayed way or they can be an absolute refuser. Levels of absolute refusal are quite low, uh, one to two percent, but very large percentages, uh, upwards of 10 to 20 percent of people are delaying or selectively refusing Uh, And in some communities, the rates are quite high, substantially higher than that, especially in some schools, especially in some private schools. We have some private schools in the southeast Michigan area where upwards of 50 percent of students are missing at least some of the school mandated vaccines on exemptions, which I suppose we'll talk about later. So that's it. Uh But I want to I want to say something about what I at first glance, what some of the philosophical interest is, if that's okay, because I don't want to just say it was a personal interest and I want to work through my personal issues. I don't think that would make for a good book. (laughs) <laughs> Maybe it would be a different, a different interesting kind of book. So, yeah. so one thing to say is just more people have died from diseases than from uh, all the wars uh, in the history of humanity and d- major disease outbreaks have often been a source of social upheaval uh, and civilization collapse. So if vaccines have been around when Hobbes and Locke were around, I, I'm pretty sure they would have written about them. Um, they're <laughs> an amazing, amazingly imfor- important piece of, of political technology uh, in addition to medical technology. But it's a weird one because mass vaccination, while it's an explicitly political project and vaccination has from the early years been political and not just a matter of medical preventative care, it's one that we make happen through the contributions of small children and infants. In fact, we take healthy infants and we impose a non-trivial risk on them in order to create a public good. We don't do that for jury trials or military service or anything else. It's also a weird intersection of the relationship between parents, predominantly mothers, and physicians in a context that looks like it's about care for the child, but really is overlapped with all these other levels of social and political consequence. And and just more generally, the more I started to look, I thought arguments being offered by advocates of um, mass vaccination were often sloppy uh, or just didn't go through, uh, so at the very least needed to be reformulated uh, or, or thought of differently and sometimes outright rejected. Uh, and and that's that's what propelled me into this. I thought uh, I'm a philosopher and I've got a, a hammer, and this this looks like a nail I can hit with it.
1: <laughs> so just to get the terminology straight, so would you say then uh, that vaccine refuser is the more ge- the most general term that captures the the different grades from vaccine hesitant to vaccine denial? Is should we should should I be asking you about? The vaccine refusal community. Would well, I think um, inclusive way? so I think
0: vaccine refusal is the topic of the book because it is often motivated by vaccine denialism. Uh, in Most cases, I think motivated by vaccine denialism uh, and emerges from vaccine hesitancy. And, and it's a sort of action that then calls for uh, We have moral and political judgments we want to make about it, about it, whereas something like vaccine hesitancy, I think, is actually perfectly reasonable and, and morally justified and not a political problem generally, uh, at least. Uh, in, uh, in some ways, so so my focus on vaccine refusal, but I, I do think of vaccine hesitancy as uh, as an important distinct phenomenon. Right, you can be hesitant without being a refuser. Right. Yeah, and, and people who are refusers are no longer merely hesitant; they've made a choice, to act.
1: <laughs> Obviously, yeah. yeah. So th- this community then of people who are concerned, suspicious. Yeah. There's an interesting series of facts about them that. Counts against what I take it is a pretty standard view about this community. Can you tell us a little bit about the demographics that we're talking about?
0: Sure. So, people who refuse vaccines, in particular, people who selectively refuse or do delayed vaccination, are on average uh, better educated, financially privileged, uh, and, and this is the kicker, have more accurate beliefs about vaccines uh, than people who vaccinate. Uh, And so, um, the most common popular uh, explanation for vaccine refusal is uh, that results from certain cognitive uh, deficiencies, sometimes called the deficit model. That is to say the vaccine refusers lack knowledge or lack uh, appropriate epistemic dispositions or are just unwilling to do the the cognitive work they need to do to come to accurate beliefs and right actions when it comes to vaccination. And I think... Or that they're superstitious and something, Exactly, exactly.
1: Yeah. 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 So,
0: So... And I think there's not there's not good evidence for that, Uh, or at least there's not good evidence that they're uniquely uh, deficient uh, cognitively compared to people who vaccinate. So 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 people who vaccinate ought not to be uh, self-satisfied as individuals, (laughs) at least. I mean, they can praise themselves, I think, for being part of uh, institutions that are better functioning at getting to good answers about safety and efficacy of vaccines. But um, but they ought not to valorize their own individual epistemic capacities.
1: Right. And they're well-educated, but also that they those who are in this community of uh, people who are at least suspicious yep. of vaccinations also tend to, looks like they know more about the, the vaccinations. Well,
0: they, than, so they have more <laughs> true beliefs about vaccines. They spend a lot more time reading and there's this idea that they're just reading crank websites and they certainly are reading crank websites. They also re- are reading both summaries of scientific research and they're, they're out there reading actual research papers. Uh, they are thoughtful and they're deliberating and they care about getting to the truth, but they are, led astray by, I think, a variety of aspects of both our individual reasoning and our sort of social political uh, reasoning that, that are, are common, right, uh, across behaviors. I, I do want to resist the idea that there's this one community. I, I don't think you're saying that, but, but sometimes people right. say, well, there's this community. Uh, and I think there are lots of different kinds of overlapping communities that often are organized around other themes uh, that lead to vaccine refusal. So there's there's a community of, of communities of people involved in what you might think of as intensive or alternative parenting, specifically mothering practices uh, to which vaccine refusal has become attached. So extended breastfeeding, uh, co-sleeping, early potty training, um, organic baby foods, baby wearing, vaccine refusal has been attached to that sort of practice. Among some sort of libertarian-ish communities, vaccine refusal has been picked up uh, as as a practice. Uh, Among people who are concerned about uh, environmental pollution, Uh, or about safety and food and other consumer products. Vaccine refusal has also been attached. Um, And so I think uh, it's helpful not to think of there being one community, perhaps lots of different communities with overlapping memberships and lots of different motivating concerns that lead to to refusing vaccines.
1: Right. And I take it that one of the um, philosophically interesting sort of um, entries into the issue is that um, among all of these communities, it looks as if the the standard way people I think are inclined to think about these communities um, doesn't really look accurate, right? That is that the def- the, the deficiency model doesn't look like it, it matches the demographic. These aren't people whose um, attitudes towards vaccinations are explicable simply in terms of ignorance or superstition or stupidity or something else. No, right? no,
0: that's quite right. Now, some of them do have false beliefs, but they haven't reached those false beliefs through mere ignorance. They've reached them through, reading and and contemplation and deliberation with others and, and often lengthy exchanges often online about these issues there's a lot there's a lot to valorize about the, the epistemic communities that these folks have often formed and and uh, in one part of the, the book I, I talk about the gendered aspects of these communities that um, we know for example that upwards of ninety percent of visits uh, at the pediatrician's office are visits that mothers take children to um, uh, we have evidence uh, at least among vaccine refusers, that they experience the pediatrician uh, interaction, especially surrounding vaccines, as being one that 's paternalistic, uh, sometimes disrespectful um, uh, they uh, these mothers often feel as if their testimony uh, about their children 's medical histories about their reactions to vaccines have not been granted sufficient uh, sufficient credibility, uh, and um, often these are uh, These parents, especially mothers who've been involved in vaccine refusal, they know something about the history of medicine, and about the abuses of power uh, um, involved in in practice of medicine. Uh, They may themselves have come out of uh, childbirthing experiences where they were um, sort of treated in paternalistic or disrespectful ways, uh, or at least felt that they were. And so oftentimes these vaccine refusing communities are uh, deliberately formed alternate uh, epistemic spaces for people who feel that they weren't welcome to engage in deliberation in the more mainstream context. And that's not to blame the pediatricians. They've got seven minutes to, to show up in the room with the, uh, the shots. They don't get paid for the half hour they spend talking to parents about vaccines, uh, especially if, if there's no vaccination at the end of it. Yeah, and
1: often they've got a lot of patients and there's a long list of people in the waiting room. Well,
0: and they're often Um, financially incentivized to not uh, to not have these people in the practice. Right. So in my area, we're increasingly seeing uh, pediatricians just kicking parents out of the practice if they don't vaccinate. In fact, my child's pediatrician just last year decided uh, to no longer admit parents refuse vaccines. And and so one reason is financial, Uh, not just they're not getting reimbursed, um, but that there are various incentive structures built into their the insurance companies reimbursement models uh, in the new accountable care organizations uh, such that if they don't have certain levels of uh, vaccination in their practice, they can get dinged as well.
1: Wow, interesting. Um, So let's pick up on the theme of the the ways in which these epistemic communities seem to embody certain kinds of virtues, as you were already sort of pointing to these communities, epistemically speaking now, as reactions against what look like pretty obvious uh, epistemic vices, right? Not listening to the testimony of people who are whose experience prima facie at least looks like it should matter or the people who are closest to the phenomena uh, being paternalistic epistemically. So you describe these communities as having a sort of uh, being more democratic in their epistemic structure. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Well, they they talk um, mean, they talk about the importance of parents' knowledge of their children, the importance of parents' questions being answered, uh, and the potential to learn from other parents about their experiences. So so one of the striking things about people who do have vaccine reactions uh, and, and vaccine complications, adverse uh, reactions to vaccination are real, one of the striking things is that very few physicians have seen more than a handful of them. Uh, and so but the experts of, of a sort of about uh, of adverse vaccine reactions are parents who have had them. Uh, and have talked to other parents. And so a, a group online of 30 parents who've had children with adverse vaccine reactions actually have more experience of that than your average pediatrician. So there's, there's real knowledge there that your pediatrician is not uh, typically accessing. So uh, there's a democratic allocation of authority, right? People's experiences of their children, people's knowledge as parents comes in, but also this idea of parent research. And, and it's it's sort of made fun of. People make fun of Jenny McCarthy for saying, uh, famous quote: The University of Google is where I got my degree from. And, and cer- <laughs> certainly, googling something is not a way to become an expert. But there are ways that, that thoughtful people doing citizen research can combine their own experiences uh, with deliberation with others and research to uh, to form a community that, that that possesses knowledge that that ought to be valued and and ought to be brought in connection with more mainstream sources of authority on these issues.
1: And just picking up on the the authority claim, so there is a a way in which there's a healthy sort of way to take a kind of adversarial stance towards a purported expert community that in democracy we're we're well attuned to. Uh, Now, what goes wrong, though, with these communities on your account has to do with the the sort of the group effect of this kind of anti-expertise or anti-authoritarianism at the epistemic level Sort of going unchecked.
0: That's right. Is that right? Well, I mean, and maybe there's something a little question begging about my my response here, right? So I want to say, at the one hand, the failure to recognize differences in expertise, right, leads these communities astray. But of course, they're going to members of these communities will respond to me and say, well, uh, we we deny that the the medical folks are experts, and and then I want to say, well, you should be paying attention to the meta experts, right? When we talk about peer review or about degrees. But but even if even if that sort of argument who the experts are is not going to get us anywhere, and in fact, the there's a you know, robust social science literature that says the people we identify as experts are those that we perceive believing uh, or being committed to our, our, our core commitments from the from the get go, and so, so that might not get us anywhere. But I, I think the, the more powerful uh, objection I have to these communities uh, is an unwillingness to come into creative tension, an unwillingness for any adversariality uh, with mainstream medical communities. Right. And so here I'm I'm sort of drawing on um, and throughout throughout this part of the work on on you know, Jose Medina and, and Miranda Fricker and, and Sandra Harding learning code. On this idea that that the value of these alternative resistant epistemic communities is so they can cultivate some knowledge that can eventually be brought into constructive tension with the mainstream communities, and when these uh, vaccine refusing communities act as mere support groups um, for parents um, and and are not and are still actively resisting questioning and uh, um, deliberation and discussion with people who, with whom they disagree. Um, they're they're systematically being led astray.
1: And the, the, the mechanism by which they're led astray sort of looks well theorized, at least by social epistemologists, in that all the biases kick in about evidence and confirmation. And it also looks as if there's a lot of overconfidence that starts kicking in because of the constant affirmation from the community that you're committed to saying is the only community that is worth talking to is this right? That's
0: right. Well, and it's a problem when your your very community identity consists of rejecting the mainstream view. right So there's no right, hold it hold uh, sort of uh, we all know that institutions, communities have institutional inertia. Uh, they they, they want to sort of keep justifying their own existence. and uh, if your existence is about being adversarial in a way that you're rejecting the mainstream view, then, then that's a problem as well. But yeah, no, I think more broadly, A common account of vaccine refusal points to this sort of bias literature, either by name or or, uh, sort of implicitly by saying vaccine refusers are excessively emotional, or they uh, they have very naive stories about uh, um, what causes uh, uh, vaccine complications or about diseases, or they uh, they don't have any memories of people who suffer from measles or polio, or they um, you know they think uh, they're subject to groupthink, and I. I think that's probably right, uh, and I think uh, there's good evidence for that, but but of course all the rest of us do that too, uh, and there's every reason to think, for example, that, that pediatricians, most of them are not doing bench science on vaccine immunology, uh, and that parents who vaccinate certainly are not doing that. Uh, rather, we're all sort of relying on various cognitive shortcuts and uh, various kinds of epistemic trust, um, but the problem for the denialists is that they, um, they're they sort of cut off from expert communities um, and so people who are vaccinating it's uh, ways anyway, a matter of luck that they have good feelings about their pediatricians or that they have convenient simple stories they can tell right? and so and, and these convenient simple stories are all over the place so it's common for people to say oh there's uh, been outbreaks of pertussis recently that's because of vaccine refusal and in fact that's that's not true um, vaccine refusal has contributed in, in small ways to recent pertussis outbreaks but the the real cause of that has been reformulation uh, of the pertussis vaccine from the 1980s uh, that has an immunity that wanes much faster uh, than the previous version of that vaccine, so we're all we're all subject to to the biases. Uh, we all rely on heuristics that that lead us astray, um, even pediatricians. And so, uh, another reason to think that, that the deficit account is going to be insufficient is is that we can't um, show that that uh, vaccine refusers are uniquely um, uh, vulnerable to to these sorts of biases.
1: Well, let me ask just a a question that that is sort of, it's not a a, a major theme that gets discussed in the book, although a lot is uh, said around the topic. Do the the sort of harder core members of the community, so the the vaccine denialists, do they tend to also be conspiracy theorists?
0: Good, so I think there's some empirical evidence that there's some overlap there, yeah. And so
1: that would be not only an epistemic community that is committed to you know, not giving uptake to the mainstream uh, medical community. Mm-hmm. It's it's committed to something in addition, which is not only not giving them uptake, but also treating them with a kind of suspicion that they sort of a priori committed to saying that whatever they say is just a another deception. Is that
0: uh, that's right? But I think that's true of a very small minority of vaccine refusers. Right. Uh, the very large majority. Of vaccine refusers actually vaccinate against some diseases, and even those who refuse all vaccines. I think I wouldn't say a majority of them, uh, or I wouldn't say the evidence suggests the majority of them are are conspiracy theorists. Um, um, and and in fact, one thing that I think is very important uh, that motivates this book, because uh, much of it is an account to say that most vaccine refusers are not as unreasonable as you might think they are. Um, a lot of what motivates that is that there are a lot of persuadable vaccine hesitant and even Sort of moderately vaccine refusing parents, and if you treat all of them as if they are in the, the core one one percent who are refusing all vaccines or, or cannot be reached, uh, then you're missing a huge opportunity uh, to engage constructively with with people who, who might be persuadable
1: right does the does one of the other sort of uh, uh, defects of this kind of epistemic community uh, so that the the persisting and seemingly uh, sturdy view that certain vaccines are connected to uh, autism, um, despite the fact that there's not really evidence for this. Is this part of the, yeah, I think model? that explanation
0: gets um, gets overplayed. Uh, and I think okay. so. So I, I really one one thing that led me to r- write this book was uh, Mark Largent, who's a historian of science uh, at Michigan state. He wrote a great book in 2012 about, um, vaccine refusal and more from a sort of historian's point of view. But one thing he argues, and I think it's quite right is that uh, debates between vaccine refusers and vaccine advocates are often proxy debates uh, for debates about larger, um, uh, larger values in particular. Uh, and so he argues persuasively, I think that that the vaccines causing autism um, is not really about the autism, right? And the reason that it continues even after the evidence has, shows demonstrably that, 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 um, vaccines in particular MMR don't contribute to autism. The reason that, that this concern continues is that it's it's about something else. It's about worries I uh, discussed in the book. I think about, among other things, different ideals about what childhood is, different ideals about what healthcare uh, is, mm-hmm. different ideas that, that are connected to a cluster uh, uh, of commitments including purity or cleanliness or sanctity or the natural or avoidance of toxins. So one way to put this is uh, the most common reason that vaccine refusers give for refusing vaccines is they believe vaccines are unsafe, but the same parents who say they think vaccines are unsafe often accept the scientific consensus about the rates of vaccine complications. Huh. So their, their safety concern is not a matter of science denialism, but it's a matter of uh, ways in which their different values are leading them to make different judgments about um, how to think about that risk uh, or to think about other risks. So um, there's a long history of vaccine refusers um, being explicitly motivated by the fact that uh, vaccines contain or are believed to contain the core objects uh, of disgust. Uh, so this comes out of the uh, sort of cognitive psychology research on disgust and impurity. So, you know, the earliest vaccines came from uh, cowpox pus uh, and there was a whole worry that uh, people uh, would become contaminated in some way become less human by having that inserted into their bodies. Of course, vaccines today don't have cowpox pus, but uh, they do have materials uh, in some vaccines that were grown from fetal cell lines from aborted fetuses. Uh, They do have materials that were uh, grown from um, pieces of of animal bodies like uh, monkey kidneys. Um, There are other things that that might seem unnatural or disgusting about vaccines. Many people are worried about toxins, Uh, worried about aluminum or formaldehyde uh, or mercury Uh, Products And no matter what you tell them about, how safe those formulations of those ingredients are or how small the amounts are compared to what people are exposed to in their environment, they're still concerned. And and I think they're concerned because they're not worried about measurable complications. They've got contamination commitments. They're expressing a sort of broader worry about maybe industrial pollution, um, which is not a totally irrational sure. thing to be worried about as as a sort of general general heuristic. You know, when when I when I can choose not to inject industrial byproducts into my body, I'll choose not to do that. That's, that's not a crazy place to begin from. All
1: right, you know, right.
0: And I think so, uh, just one more point on this. I think yeah. I think we parents and especially mothers are encouraged to be hypervigilant about the foods they feed their children, about the, the products. Um, that they give to their kids about whether there are uh, flame retardants on their children's pajamas or BPA plastics in their toys and this maternal hypervigilance. Um, we see it play out, I think, here in terms of vaccine refusal as well.
1: Right. And this connects with especially the stuff I'm discussed. You have a you have a nice discussion in the book about um, the conception of the natural yeah. that sometimes drives us. Can you tell us a, more explicitly a little bit just about that, the nature of that, because it does have a gendered aspect to it as well, doesn't it?
0: Well, us say, maybe you say another bit about that question. I don't know, know where that's going.
1: Um, well, so that there's something about what a natural family is or what uh, a yes. natural uh, nurturing relationship is that it's somehow unmediated by human artifacts. So no, That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, so, right. so
0: at least some vaccine refusers, are not as worried about uh, maybe these uh, tox, so-called toxic ingredients in vaccines, but they just think that uh, that health shouldn't involve such a reliance on technology. Uh, and right. in fact, the earliest uh, forms of vaccine refusers uh, at the end of the 19th and the 20th century were also parts of the, the physical uh, culture movement that brought us the idea of, of gyms and uh, eating health foods. Uh, and, uh, uh, so like you know, Kellogg and the 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 sanitar- uh, sanatorium movements and such. Um, uh, bodybuilding, right? The early bodybuilding culture in, in America was also uh, characterized by vaccine refusals, uh, and and in fact, there's a delightful, delightfully frightening, delightful book, children's book <laughs> that came out uh, in Australia a few years ago, uh, called Melanie's Marvelous Measles, uh, that describes how wonderful it is to have a childhood where you you get an, a disease naturally and you naturally recover. Uh, because you've been eating organic foods and you've been getting lots of exercise and fresh air, uh, but that the children who eat candy and get vaccines, they have this sort of uh, contaminated, less natural, less, uh, less flourishing life uh, for those reasons. And, and, and that's not, I mean, this is continuous with, with other sort of natural ideals we have in the culture today. And I think one way in which it's gendered is the idea of natural as a way of talking, expressing commitments to naturalness. Uh, in the vaccine debate uh, are connected with ways of thinking about uh, our anxieties about the demise of middle class motherhood Um, uh, and uh, there's a long history of contamination worries being attached to cultural change. So you see for example um, in the 1980s there was a lot of uh, contamination myths about fast food restaurants uh, that were tied explicitly to the entry of uh, middle class uh, women into the workforce. Uh, and I think uh, it's no coincidence that vaccine refusers are often attached to uh, committed to intensive forms of parenting, specifically mothering practice, uh, and often call themselves uh, natural or alternative parenting practices. Uh, and, and where that, that natural motherhood consists of a rejection of vaccines, you often hear them say things like, well, I do extended breastfeeding because my breast milk is medicine and my breast milk is vaccine. Uh, I don't need uh, this artificial intervention in my child's health care
1: right um so okay so great we've we've got a, a sense now of the the hard questions in epistemology <laughs> and, that that you reference in in the uh, in the subtitle of the book and uh, how those uh, questions in epistemology are tempered by different value different value commitments, but the latter chapters of the book particularly start moving into um you know sort of policy questions about. Uh, social ethics and even political philosophy. So let me ask the sort of uh, the the, the kind of blunt question, and then we can get into some of the more nuanced dimensions of it. Do you think that there's a parental right to refuse vaccination?
0: So I don't think there's a moral right, uh, though not for the reasons that most people, at least in the debate, seem to think. (laughs) There clearly are legal rights. And then the question is whether um, the state has a right uh, to... um, at the very least uh, uh incentivize or, uh vaccination or disincentivize uh not vaccinating and i think the state certainly has that right uh so, so so unpack that if, if you like um sure. just just go into that then yeah
1: yeah, yeah so yeah. i think
0: the most um so i've been working recently after the books uh, come out with local public health people uh and it's striking two things are striking one is is how quickly they embrace the deficit model so when we were brainstorming about ways to expand vaccine compliance, which is their term, a weird term, vaccine compliance um, yeah. sort of obedience. Uh, education and knowledge is, is top on their list. People don't know enough. But also um, they make utilitarian arguments, right? Like people just need to know that it's for the greater good. Some people are going to have vaccine complications, but on balance, if everyone's vaccinated uh, or, or almost everyone's vaccinated, we're going to have a much healthier community. And it's it's totally sensible that, that someone from this sort of bureaucratic Point of view, right? Just managing finite resources and looking for the health of the community would make a sort of utilitarian argument. Um, But but it's also very reasonable for individual parents not to take up that point of view when it comes to decisions about their children. Uh, And I think uh, the failure of public health officials to uh, confront the the sort of weakness of a utilitarian justification of a moral duty to vaccinate uh, does a disservice, right? And so there was a movie out a couple years ago by the uh, by some vaccine refusers entitled the greater good, and it sort of argued that um, mass vaccination programs were, you know, allowing some children to be sacrificed for the health of the community, and that this was wrong, and and with direct, and and frankly over the top comparisons to, uh, uh, you know, Nazi medical experiments and such. Um, right. And so, but but I think I think advocates of vaccination do themselves a disservice when they embrace these arguments. Clearly, I don't think philosophers are doing this, but in as much as I have something to say to them, uh, I want to rely on I think more the ontological arguments about moral reasons to vaccinate
1: right so could you tell us a little bit about um why you think there's you 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 give this sort of free rider kind of yeah yeah so maybe uh,
0: uh, so that's a sort of harder case and maybe i'll come back to that the first i think is just a duty to take reasonable means not to place other people at uh, avoidable risk of significant harm right? Choosing not to vaccinate your child is is choosing to place your your neighbor who has leukemia or your great-grandmother with a compromised immune system at risk of death. Uh, And if at minimal risk yourself, you can do that. I think that's a very stringent duty. Uh, I also think it's a stringent duty. Maybe it doesn't become more stringent, but be more attentive to the stringency of that duty when we reflect on the historical context of vaccination programs. For a very, very long time, uh, the most coercive public vaccination programs have been aimed at immigrants uh, and at uh, poor uh, uh, and otherwise oppressed members of the population, uh, such that um, wealthier, and more privileged, and whiter people uh, have been able to uh, impose risks on others because other people have allowed them uh, to do so. So, but I think so that sort of argument needs to be made. I, I think it's not as strong, the harm prevention argument is not as strong as people sometimes think because when herd immunity is robust. That is to say, when a supermajority, upwards of 80 to 95 percent, depending on the vaccine, uh, when these numbers of people are vaccinated, you're not actually increasing the risk of infecting other people significantly. Um, harm prevention, defenses of a moral duty or, or a political right to uh, to either vac- vaccinate or, or impose vaccination uh, are, are sort of slippery in this way. Right. And so I think the stronger argument or the more stable argument are fairness-based arguments, so arguments uh, against free riding on herd immunity.
1: Right. And could you run us through? Yeah, of, yeah, of course. 100%. So I think,
0: so I think, that first, the way in which these arguments normally get made, I think, um, uh, don't go through. But we can still save them. So the easy way to make this argument is to say that um, people who don't vaccinate uh, take unfair advantage of the fact that other people have. So the people have contributed to this uh, public good of herd immunity. Um, that is to say that it's much less likely that they're going to be infected. Uh, and so when they choose not to vaccinate, uh, they take advantage. Uh, of this in, in an unfair way. Um, so, putting aside the sort of Nozick style worries about um, sort of duties of fair play to contribute to uh, goods that others have contributed and you didn't uh, contract yeah. yourself into, putting that aside, uh, there's a sort of conceptual problem, namely that people who create herd immunity don't actually benefit from it in a direct way because they're not people who create herd immunity by becoming vaccinated, by developing individual immunity are protected by their individual immunity. They're no longer relying on herd immunity for protection against disease in the first place. So so, so it's in some ways wrong to think about herd immunity uh, as a public good. Uh, and I think right. the literature doesn't reflect that sufficiently. The way to save it, uh, the idea of, a, of a, a public good associated with herd immunity is to speak about um, the protection against outbreaks uh, uh, is really a protection against um Economic disruption or against political stability and the investment therefore in herd immunity is an investment in a more stable and, and flourishing society um, you know it's It's parents not having to stay home with their kids during an outbreak, even though their kids are vaccinated uh, and so everyone does benefit from the goods but but not not in this direct way uh, that some people seem to think
1: well, oh, I see so the, the argument then is that the free rider it, sort of the the free rider is taking advantage of not directly health related opportunities that are created by others vaccination is that how it would well i
0: mean be? they are they are taking advantage of them but but of course that's the point of cultivating herd immunity the people who have individual right. immunity um the reason for them for lots and lots of them to have to have individual immunity is not to protect them because they already have individual immunity the point is to protect the non-vaccinated and so you're right. not free riding on something if the point was to provide it for others um what you are free riding on though um So I think you can save the idea of there being a public good. That is to say one that's enjoyed by all the members of the community. If you think about the public good of mass vaccination in terms of the broader economic and political um, um, benefits that you get out of that. So that's, that's one sort of more sophisticated move I think you have to make. Another worry I have is that frankly, lots of vaccine refusers are not free riders. Um, Some of them will say, look, I'd be happy for my kids to get measles and polio. Uh, You know, given the discussion I have about sort of natural health stuff. Now maybe they're, they wouldn't be. So maybe these are some false beliefs they have, but, but many of them are not, at least on the surface, um, saying, well, I'm, I'm happy to refuse vaccines because I know my kids won't get the vaccine. Some of them actually say, well, I'd be happy for this to happen. Uh, and in fact, um, there's, there's sort of emergence of, of uh, sort of parties, the so-called pox parties where, where their kids get chicken pox or get pertussis or get, and they get together and, sh- and spread the disease around so that everyone in the community can get it at once. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So they're they're in many cases, not afraid of these diseases. Maybe they should be, but but they're not. And so uh, someone who is not um, uh, refusing um, because she's counting on uh, the fact that other people are not refusing is not a free rider. Right. She she's had this good imposed on her that she'd be happy to not have to take advantage of.
1: Just picking up on this. So one of the things that, that didn't seem to come into your analysis as strongly as it might, and again, I'm just an interloper here. I, I haven't um, thought deeply philosophically about some of these issues. Is the, the putting of the, chil- the child at risk? Good, yeah. So um, I
0: think, um, good. so for the sake of this argument, I'm willing to admit, which I think is false, right, that, that it can sometimes be in a child's interest to refuse vaccines. Right. Uh, I, I think in most cases it's not. Uh, but I'm willing. I'm willing to accept that for the sake of the argument. Because if it's not, uh, then there's a harder case. Then the parent has to say she has a more right to act in ways that don't advance the child's interests. And I think you can defend that. I think as a parent, there are things I do all day long uh, that don't maximally protect my child's interests. Right? I let them watch TV sometimes, and they could be doing a little more reading. Uh, I let them, I let them play out front, even though there are cars driving by quickly on the street. There's all sorts of things I do that don't maximally promote my kids' interests. And so I think. Um, I think you're not going to get a strong moral reason to vaccinate, especially under conditions of herd immunity, out of concern about what's in the children's best interests. OK, right. so just um, much like the harm argument, I think the, the sort of argument for the best interest of the child is going to be uh, unstable uh, and particularly weak when herd immunity is robust.
1: OK, so let's then move to what looks like a neighbor sort of a question in the neighborhood. Yeah. Uh, about what states have the right to do. So uh, what does your view about the moral right <laughs> uh, mean for the state? Does the state get to impose or coerce vaccination? Good. So,
0: so some terminology might be helpful and maybe a bit of history. A bit of history. Some people talk about uh, the state imposing vaccination or uh, compelling vaccination. Uh, states have almost never compelled vaccination. Uh, there's been almost no cases of states under uh, at least legally, right, going door to door with police officers and with syringes. Um, so this this almost never happened. Uh, even even the Supreme Court cases, so Jacobson versus Massachusetts, that was invoked later to justify course of sterilization. Even Jacobson, uh, in 1905, I believe, only upheld the right of the state to impose a fine, a small fine, that was like ten bucks. Right. Uh, maybe it's bigger. Than 10 bucks is more in 1905, but not that much um, <laughs> right. on a parent who refused a vaccine. So so really, when we talk about coercive vaccination policy, we're talking about uh, imposing costs on people uh, who refuse to vaccine or with withdrawing social or other services or opportunities they'd otherwise be entitled to. So we're denying them access to some workplaces um, right? you can't join the military or work in the health professions if you don't get vaccinated. We're denying that they have access to daycare uh, or schools or in many cases uh, institutions of higher education if they're not vaccinated no one which are pretty yeah. which,
1: which can be pretty high cost oh, so they're high cost I mean I'm happy sure. to
0: call them coercive but I think
1: yeah.
0: uh, when people talk about compulsory vaccination yeah, opposing exactly. vaccination uh, that's not been a part uh, of uh, of vaccination policy and no one no one is or should be advocating that I think um, okay so, so that's that so can we can we do this well I mean I think the Many of the arguments for moral duty to vaccinate um, identify reasons that you can give people for why the state can use coercion uh, to promote vaccination. Uh, So harm-based arguments um, certainly should be accepted uh, as reasons for state coercion. uh, And I think also fairness-based arguments, right? So one thing a government ought to be doing is developing and maintaining valuable public goods and ensuring that people make a fair distribution to those public goods. I've got to pay my taxes uh, for the roads and bridges. Uh, and even though you could privatize the roads and bridges, you can't privatize herd immunity. And so we're yeah. going to need someone to to make sure that we're making fair contributions to that very, very valuable public good. Now, now one thing I want to say, especially when it comes to coercion, this matters from the moral arguments as well, but it especially matters to the coercive arguments is that um, there's no such thing as vaccines. There are individual vaccines. And that yeah. the reasons, both moral reasons for getting them, but also the sort of reasons for, for state coercion differ depending on the vaccines. So um, one thing I'm critical of public health officials for is invoking uh, the specter of smallpox, right, which has killed untold hundreds of millions of people, to justify uh, coercive state measures or to try and justify coercive state measures uh, for other vaccines. Smallpox is uh, – I mean, chickenpox is not smallpox. Uh, right. Healthy children um, have almost no complications ever from chickenpox uh, and um, certainly, the varicella virus contributes to shingles, uh, causes shingles, which is a very bad disease. Um, but again, nothing like smallpox. But, but there are other issues too. So um, the degree of control over one that's exposure matters, right? So we think that if we can, uh, we can be more responsible for harm, and, and maybe the state has less uh, permission to protect people or force people to, to protect us from those harms if we can control our exposure to that harm. So uh, you know, uh, you can't control your exposure to measles. Right? A kid with measles right. walks into a room with 200 other people. Uh, An hour later after walking around, everyone's been exposed. But uh, HPV is transmitted primarily through intravenous drug use and sexual activity. Uh, And while certainly those activities aren't always entirely voluntary, uh, there's a different degree of control that we often have about whether we're not, uh, we're going to have a risk of HPV imposed upon us. I think that matters. And then some diseases are just not contagious. Tetanus is not contagious. Uh, And so harm based arguments uh, are not going to work for tetanus. Uh, and fairness-based arguments aren't going to work either because there can be no herd immunity against a disease that's uh, not contagious.
1: Right. now. So, so the so the language then about um, the strategy of arguing, uh, you, know, in, you know, using the specter of you know, smallpox as a way yeah. to defend vaccination as such. Yeah. You're saying. Uh, and the,
0: and sorry, the United States uh, is rather unique in this way. So in Western Europe, for example. There are very few vaccine mandates at all in, in those countries, uh, but when there are vaccine mandates, they're almost always disease specific. So many countries have only vaccine mandates uh, for measles and polio vaccine, for example. The other ones are encouraged and, of course, free or, or heavily subsidized, uh, and their vaccine uptake rates rates are quite high. Uh, but there's vaccine-specific distinctions when it comes to the role of the state uh, in promoting that. And I think it's a problem uh, that America's not gone that way because um, Parents can reason about, you know, I had chickenpox, and lots of people had chickenpox, and and this is not smallpox, this is not measles, uh, and, and 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 I see it in vaccine uh, advocates I talk to, a willingness to sort of continue to add to the list of uh, mandated vaccines, um, Where where is, it seems clear to me that when there are diminishing returns on the sort of cost-benefit analysis, um, we ought to be skeptical about whether we want the state using its power to. Uh, coerce people to, to vaccinate,
1: right? There's a there's an old sort of philosopher's idea, like coercion, even when it's justified, still needs to be sparing. <laughs> uh, good. Um, so if then the argument uh, is that there are coercive coercive measures, we'll say that the state is justified in employing in order to increase vaccination levels. Yeah. Um, then the question comes up about non-medical kinds of exemptions. That's right. Uh, and this is where the book ends. So, and the, the the more general philosophical thought is even in cases where the state is justified in doing something, there might be distinctive kinds of reasons why for certain communities or maybe just certain citizens, That's right. they, they should be spared or uh, not subject to the course of measures. That's right. That's right. Tell us a little bit about so good. that. So
0: I think, I think uh, states, my general view is that, that states ought to be offering um non metal exemptions to vaccine mandates, which is to say that uh, parents who object to vaccines for reasons of personal belief or religious conviction or or personal integrity uh, um, uh, ought to be allowed in some occasions to send their kids uh, to school and daycare even uh, if they're not fully vaccinated. But I don't think that uh, we get there in a really straightforward manner that some vaccine policy critics argue. So it's common to see arguments that, well, Parental rights justify um, expansive exemptions programs, and so so first, I don't argue they don't, but I also argue that, that if they do, then they, they actually get too much. They, uh, if, if parents ought to have these sort of rights, then uh, um, to make all decisions about their children's health care, um, uh, then you, you can't get coercive vaccination off the ground in the first place. Uh, Likewise, you see an argument about informed consent, which is really collapses to an argument about parental autonomy and and parental rights that I think similarly doesn't get you an account of exemptions. So what we need instead is uh, an argument uh, where we get uh, uh, that's consistent with um, the justice of a general law um, that has coercive uh, force behind vaccination, but that admits of exceptions. Uh, And I think um, an argument, you know, a couple of different ways to not get that. Uh, I, I've become more sympathetic um, with with arguments from liberal justice for exemptions. I think if you can show uh, that parents who are refusing have uh, reasons uh, for objecting, if you can show that they face unique burdens, if you compelled them to vaccinate or excluded them or uh, say their children from school and daycare, and if you can show that they don't have any third party harms. Uh, that to say if their children's uh, failure to be vaccinated, uh, would not undermine herd immunity, uh, then I think there can be a compelling case, um, for exemptions. Here I go a little bit beyond what I say in the book, but I, that to the side, I think the most compelling case for exemptions is a, a pragmatic case. And so maybe if I talk about the, the experience of, of California, so we're, we're recording this, um, a couple of days before the July 1st, uh, 2016, um, um Kickoff date for California's new policy uh, that prohibits uh, parents from enrolling children in school and daycare um, unless they're fully vaccinated with no permission for exemptions based on religious or personal belief grounds. So they've eliminated all exemptions. Um, even if you think that parents aren't entitled as a matter of justice to exemptions, I think we're gonna be people are gonna be surprised at what happens. Uh, there's already evidence that parents are gonna place Pressure on enrollment-dependent private and charter schools uh, to accept provisional, uh, do provisional admittance of the under-vaccinated children. Uh, there's already organizing uh, for acts of civil disobedience, so parents showing up with their under-vaccinated kids at school and not leaving. Um, you know, I, I think if we see on the news images of parents and small children being carted away from school and police vans, um, no. I don't think <laughs> that's going to be good PR. Um, no. And more generally, I worry that this is politically polarizing. Uh, debates about vaccination policy, but maybe also vaccine policy. So, up until this point, up until very recently, beliefs both about vaccination policy and the vaccine science have not been correlated by political ideology. And so, unlike uh, GMO science or um, anthropogenic climate change. But in the states, uh, including California, that's eliminated all medical exemptions, and Vermont, beginning actually in July this year as well, will eliminate all personal belief exemptions, they're holding on to the religious ones, but these are two states that have eliminated in the past year exemptions. They were basically party line votes, they were wow. all Democrats, all and basically only Democrats voting to eliminate the exemptions and Republicans voting for them. You've seen in, in the current presidential or the presidential primary that's just wrapped up, um, both what Donald Trump, Rand Paul uh, and uh, uh, Chris Christie uh, all advocating for expansive exemptions policies. Uh, and uh, criticizing attempts to restrict exemptions. Uh, I think it's it's a disaster uh, if we see what I think we're starting to see, which is political polarization in beliefs about vaccine policy, uh, because we know among other things, so that would be disastrous for vaccine policy, but also that's likely to lead to politically polarized beliefs about the vaccine science Um, and and it's a problem for climate change, but but a disaster when you need 85, uh, 95% people to vaccinate for policy to work. so I'm much uh, more sympathetic with policies like my home state has undertaken in Michigan. Um, we have continued to allow people to be exempted for any reason they want, um, but we require them now to show up at a uh, at the local public health department for a half-hour education session. Now, the state's not naive enough to think they actually change anyone's mind, uh, but there's good evidence that imposing additional burdens, making it less easy to take advantage of the exemptions can lower the exemptions rates. Uh, and so if we can um, you know, preserve the liberties that parents have been accustomed to, uh, even if they're not entitled to them, um, while lowering exemptions rates. Then we should be doing that. And, and in fact, Michigan had a almost forty percent reduction in its exemptions rates last year with this new policy.
1: Interesting. So let me let me ask then. Just and and, and this is going a little bit beyond okay. uh, uh, the book. So. In the states like California, as you were just saying, that have sort of eliminated all exemptions. Yeah.
0: Well, the non medical um, ones, yeah.
1: Yeah, all the, uh, yeah, good, right. Is there, is there a sense of what the, what the reasoning is? So
0: I, I, I've got a thing, uh, a couple of things that I hope are coming out on, on, on this, uh, this issue uh, and other issues in exemptions policies. Um, I'm very disappointed. So in 2012 in California, they passed a bill that actually imposed greater burdens on people, parents who wanted exemptions, they made them have to go and talk, not the public health department like Michigan, but they had to talk to their physician and get their physician to sign a form and it was working. In the first year after it was imposed, there were significant declines in exemptions rates and increases in the vaccination rates. But you had um, a democratic supermajority in the legislature, uh, including uh, some of the bill's authors. Uh, Here we're talking about Senate Bill 277 in California who are physicians and who got freaked out about the 2014, 2015 uh, Disneyland measles outbreak. Uh, And they felt like we have to do something now, even though the evidence was showing their previous policy was working. So I think I remark in the book or or somewhere else that, um, you know, here is perhaps a case of biased reasoning on the the part of uh, vaccine advocates who are uh, latching on to especially emotionally evocative high-profile events and failing to pay attention to statistical evidence uh, about the efficacy of a less coercive Policy.
1: Oh, yeah. So these oh, guys, these yeah, the
0: state senators who sponsored the uh, the bill limiting non-medical exemptions in California. I mean, they're sort of villains in my story, even though I agree with them. Vaccination is super important. All three of my kids are fully vaccinated. Uh, you know, I'm not. Uh, I, I think vaccines are really important, which is why I think we need to be careful about uh, using coercion right. uh, when we don't need it.
1: And so I, I, I suspect the answer to this is no, but, you know, there is a, a, a pretty, well, I should say a notorious, I, I tended to think pretty strong anti-exemption argument that was raised by Brian Barry about 10 years ago. that just said, you know, any argument for exemption is really just an argument against there being a law at all. That's right. That's right. <laughs> right. Um, is there... Is there any reason to think that reasoning like that has driven any of the the, the push to eliminate the non-medical exemptions? That if we allow non-medical exemptions, then it looks as if the law just, you know, we're really just chipping away at the law and and conceding that the law, that there shouldn't be a law governing this sphere of activity at all. Or is that just not? Good. No, no, that's a great
0: point. And in fact, said earlier, the vaccine sort of advocates, uh, activists in vaccine-refusing communities, are quite clear that they don't want course of vaccination anyway, right? That's their ultimate right. uh, thing they want to attack. And they, they see protect exemptions as, as um, a way to, to get half a loaf. Um, so no, I think there yeah. are very few people, uh, and, and I think vaccine advocates on the other side, right? Say, well, we shouldn't have exemptions because there's a general law. And, and if the general law is justified, then, um, uh, but, but I think, I mean, I think you can hew a middle ground. Uh, I've become a little more sympathetic with this argument than I was in the book, um, where if you can show that these parents have reasons, perhaps there are reasons of religious conviction, perhaps there are reasons of sort of underlying lifestyle commitments, if you can show that uh, – reasons for objecting, if you can show that uh, they are uh, going to be subject to undue uh, and unique burdens uh, and if you can show uh, – uh, if they're uh, compelled to vaccinate or uh, or compelled not to attend school or daycare, which I think is, is the other disaster in California, um, under-vaccinated right. and unvaccinated children are exactly the children you want under state supervision. These are not the children you want thrown into homeschooling communities, which are amazingly unregulated. Um, right. Um, so, uh, so there are huge burdens there, and if you can show that there's not going to be a third-party harm, if you can show that herd immunity is, can tolerate one to two or three four uh, percent exemption rate, um, then I think you can you can have a reason for both a general law and an exemption. I'm I'm not, I'm more sympathetic with that argument than, than I was uh, before, um, but I also think that. That's that's not doing most of the work. Uh, what's doing most of the work are these pragmatic and political considerations.
1: I see. Yeah. I see. Great. Great. Well, you've been generous with your time. So um, thank you, Bob. This has been fun. What's yeah, well? What's next with your? What will happen next with you? Are you going to continue to pursue? Sure. Sounds like you're considering continuing to pursue some of these questions. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I've got I've got a project. where I'm thinking about food ethics and food justice and some papers on that. But but the vaccine stuff has been occupying a lot of my time. I've got a couple of papers. Uh, one of them that I'm writing with Mark Largent from Michigan State on, on exemptions policies. I've got a couple papers on uh, physician parent communication and ideas about uh, parental autonomy, including the use of the nudges, the tools from behavioral economics. And then I'm really excited. I've started with collaborators both at, at my institution at Michigan State and the local public health department, some empirical research projects. This, much of my book is about how uh, vaccine advocates misunderstand the concerns and the commitments of people who are refusing vaccines. Uh, and uh, while I offer a bunch of speculative arguments, uh, I'm a philosopher, and, and I don't I haven't done the empirical work. And I thought, well, why not? Uh, I'll, I'll make some yeah. friends in in psychology and in sociology who uh, will go and do this work with me. So we are uh, we have surveyed parents who've come in for these education sessions at, at Michigan Public Health Departments about their concerns. We're starting next month some focus groups for the public health nurses who are doing these education sessions to better understand what's going on there. And then we're also going to review the complete immunization records for all of the children who received exemptions, starting in my local county, but I'm hoping expanding uh, elsewhere, so 4,000 records, which we can link to information about the educators and the sort of arguments and strategies the educators used in those uh, interventions. So I really want to learn more, uh, and I think I've exhausted my philosophical tools, and and I'm uh, a philosopher who's learned how to go through an IRB process and and learn (laughs) how to (laughs) of empirical
1: research. Well, that all sounds fascinating. You should uh, definitely uh, keep me posted about, about these projects. All that sounds, uh, that sounds great. But uh, for now, let me just thank you for spending some time today to talk to us about your book, uh, Values and Vaccine Refusal.
0: Bob, thank you. This was delightful.
1: Great. I will, uh, I'll be in touch. I'll talk to you later. Thanks. Bye. You've been listening to my interview with Professor Mark Naven of Oakland University. We were talking about his new book, Values and Vaccine Refusal, Hard Questions in Ethics, Epistemology, and Healthcare, which is newly published by Routledge. I'm Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for listening.